New Testament reading today is from the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. That can be found on page 1032 in the Pew Bible. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Good morning. Um, so my wife suggested this. Uh, since today is May 5th, which is Cinco de Mayo, the Mexican holiday that's not really a Mexican holiday, um, we should do the message in Spanish. So if you guys would open up your Google translators on your phones, we'll get started. Uh, so yo trabajo en una prisión, se llama Branchville, en uh, más o menos uh, los viernes. Y hice, or hace uh, tres semanas, you, uh, oh, you guys thought I was kidding. No, no, I was going to try to do this the whole time. Yeah, um, so, what I was saying to translate is I work at, I volunteer at a prison in Branchville uh, most Fridays, and uh, so three weeks ago, uh, I didn't have much time, my time came up to talk and there wasn't much time left, so I thought I would ask a basic question. Uh, if you were to die right now and you're to stand before God and he says, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And there were 14 of us in the room, and of those 14, only two uh, were able to give an answer that was even somewhat appropriate with what the Bible says. And I was like, wow. Okay, they have Bible study seven days a week there plus a church service on Sunday. Some of these guys have been coming to our Bible study on Friday, some of them for a couple of years. And they couldn't give an answer to that. I thought, man. I mean, this, this said a lot about our Bible study, right? We assume people know the gospel. And we just kind of skip over it. And so I want to ask you guys that question. If you were to die right now, and you were to stand before God, and he says, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Does your answer line up with the Bible? And just think about it. We'll get back to it in a bit. So quick review. What's the name of the series that you guys are in right now? Not ashamed of? The gospel. Yeah. Yep. And what is the definition of gospel? Good news. Good news. Okay. Two for two. Two for two. Um... Can we put that diagram up? Do we have that diagram? Yeah. You guys remember this? Okay. How many practiced this on a napkin this week? Or even a piece of paper? Yeah. Yeah. 
How many actually shared this with somebody this week? You don't have to draw it, but you could have just used it in your head to walk through with someone sharing the gospel. Okay. Well, let's walk through it real quick. So in the upper right, that circle up there is basically the world, correct? When you look at the world today, what do you see? I think everybody knows something's not right in the world. Things are broken. Things aren't working the way they're supposed to. You have sickness. You have illness, um, hunger, starvation, wars, all this stuff. Well, originally, the way God planned it was the circle on the top left. God's plan was perfection, right? He created everything. It was perfect. But because of sin, sin has been introduced into God's perfect plan, and now we have brokenness. And so we try a lot of different ways to fix our brokenness, don't we? We try self-help stuff. Do you know the self-help industry is about a $10 billion a year industry? We try to make ourselves better, thinking that'll fix the brokenness in our lives. We try relationships. If I can find the right boyfriend, girlfriend, group of friends, that'll fix it. Um, we try drugs and alcohol. If I can just numb it enough, then the pain will go away. Okay. Uh, we try money or getting enough things or getting the right position at work or in life or whatever. Uh, that'll make things better. Uh, we even try being religious, don't we? If I can just be a good enough person, the brokenness will go away in my life. But what happens every time? Eventually we get snapped back and realize the world is still broken. This isn't fixing the problem of brokenness. But God has a plan at the bottom there. God became a person. We know him as Jesus. He comes to earth. He lives a perfect life. He dies on a cross. He's buried. After three days he comes back to life, proving that he is God, that he is the Messiah. And he comes back to life and he goes back to heaven. And so God says... If you will turn from where you're going and turn to me, and you will put your faith in Jesus and what he did on that cross, that that will pay the price for your sins. And sin is not just not doing what God said to do or doing things that God said don't do. It's also just giving God the stiff arm and saying, I don't need you. Stay away from me. God says if we will turn to him and put our faith in Jesus and surrender to him as king, then God promises to forgive us and to restore us back to that perfection in our relationship with him that was the original plan. And not only that, once we get restored, he then takes us and sends us back into the brokenness to tell other people the good news, right? So that's the story. So this is just a a helpful tip. I have found that I am much more likely to share this story with people if I have practiced a bunch. So that I know what I'm going to say and I'm not going to wind up going down a bunch of rabbit trails or get my tongue tied. So I would just suggest drawing this out many times over and over and over on a piece of paper. So even if you don't have a piece of paper to draw on, you can use this as a guide in your head to share the gospel. Here's another question. So this Bible is a big, thick book, right? Big book. Where would you find the gospel in this book? Yeah, everywhere. Somebody said everywhere. You know, a lot of people will say it's in the Gospels, correct? Kind of makes sense. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they're called the Gospels, so that's where you would find it. And so my question is, well, that's six, or that's four books out of 66. That's about 6% of the total books. So why do we have the rest of this book if we only need the four? Because we say the Gospel is the center of everything. Because what what we like to focus on with the gospel is what we call redemption. We have been redeemed. We have been bought out of our slavery to sin, as as, as it's called in Romans. We are slaves to sin, 
And we get redeemed by what Christ did from that, and that's what we focus on. But how do you really understand being redeemed from sin and being restored to a right relationship with God unless you first understand the fall? Right? And how can you really comprehend what the fall means unless you first understand creation, the original creation? And then how can you understand creation leading, which then uh, was corrupted by the fall, which then were redeemed out of? How can you understand the benefit of all that unless you understand there's a final restoration of everything being turned back to the way God originally planned it? And so my goal today is to show you that from the beginning of this big, thick book to the end of this big, thick book is one story, and it's all about God and his salvation being made known to the world so that he will be glorified through the gospel. So that's the plan. We'll see how well it goes. So the first, the first thing I want to do is, is I want to walk from Genesis to Revelation in two different ways today. The first way is we're just going to tell the story from Genesis to Revelation, and we're going to do it in about ten minutes, so don't panic. We'll get out of here on time. But I just want to show you the big picture. Okay? So in the beginning, God creates everything and it's perfect. And he puts Adam and Eve in a garden. And he says, hey, you can kind of do whatever you want, just take care of the place, but don't eat from this one tree. And why do they eat from the one tree? Because they want to be like God. And God says, it's not about you, it's about me. And so when they eat from that tree, they realize they've sinned, correct? They realize they're naked, and so what does God do? He kills an animal, and he takes the skin from that animal, and he covers up their nakedness. Immediately we find out something very important. There's a huge price to pay for sin. Something has to die. Okay? And then Noah comes along. Everybody on the earth but eight people are killed in a flood. What's the significance of that? God says, I take sin pretty serious. Sin's pretty serious. And then we jump ahead and we wind up in Acts, or Genesis chapter 12, and a guy named Abram comes on the scene, whose name is later changed to Abraham. And God makes a promise to him, and he says, Abraham, through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Genesis, uh, the first, Genesis 12, the first three verses. Do you know that promise he made to Abraham is referenced by Paul and by Peter as the gospel? Do you know in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we actually have the first mention of the gospel? And so that promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12, that all nations of the world will be blessed through you, that phrase, the world, all the people, all the nations, is used over 2,000 times throughout the rest of the Bible. Showing us that from the very beginning, God was not just interested in a group of people called the Israelites. God, from the very beginning, was interested in the world. And so Abraham has a son named Isaac. God makes the same promise to Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. God makes the same promise to Jacob about the nations being blessed through him. And Jacob's name is then changed to what? Israel. And Israel has how many sons? Twelve. And that's why we have the twelve tribes of Israel. Correct? And so God has a purpose for Israel also. In Exodus 19, he says, Israel, you are to be a kingdom of priests. Now think about it. What is the purpose of priests? Priests don't minister to themselves, right? They help people enter into the presence of God. And so who is Israel supposed to minister to? Who is Israel supposed to bring into the presence of God? Well, to make it clear, God lays that out in Isaiah 49.6. 
He says, Israel, your purpose is to be a light to the Gentiles to make my salvation known to all the nations. Israel's purpose was to be a light to the Gentiles to make God's salvation, the gospel essentially, known to all the nations. That's what he saved him for. He said, hey, I didn't, save, I didn't take you out of Egypt because you were the biggest group of people or you were the most righteous. He says, I took you out of Egypt because no God had ever taken for himself a people out of another people. And because of that, my name is made great amongst the nations. So how did Israel do that, fulfilling their, their responsibilities? David had a few hiccups. He's called a man after God's own heart, though. Uh, if you read his Psalms, you know what you'll find? Reference after reference after reference to the nations. David understood God's vision, God's plan for the nations. Solomon, his son, comes along. Um, things started going downhill pretty quick. He starts marrying and taking concubines from the nations God told him not to take, take wives from. And to keep them happy, what does he do? He starts building altars so that they will worship false gods. And so now instead of worshiping the one true God, they're worshiping all these different gods also. And so what does God do with that? That's when he sends all those Old Testament prophets that are sometimes difficult to understand, that a lot of us don't read very often. You know what their major message was to Israel, who is now divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, that's ten tribes, and the southern kingdom, which is two? The basic message is, I had a purpose for you. You're supposed to be telling the nations who I am, but now when they look at you, they have no idea who I am because you've mixed in the worship of all these false gods with the worship of the one true God. Get rid of the false gods and go back to worshiping me and fulfill the purpose I have for you. Israel chose not to listen. So God takes them into captivity. But even in captivity, God has one big plan. Make his name great and his salvation known to all the nations. So what happens? Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You got the three guys in the fiery furnace who get out, don't even smell like smoke. And you got Daniel escaping from the lion's den. And what happens after each one of those? The king at that time sends out a decree to all his kingdom that says these guys worship the one true God. So even in captivity, God is about making his name great. And eventually God takes the Israelites out of captivity and takes them back to Jerusalem. They rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. And he says in Ezekiel why he does that. He reminds Israel, this is not because you were great while you were in captivity. I am doing this so that when people look at, at Jerusalem and the temple, they will know I am who I am. I am the one true God. And so in Malachi chapter, or the last book of the Old Testament, it tells us why God has been doing all this up to this point. Malachi, the first chapter, verse 11, the Lord God says, my name will be worshipped from the rising to the setting of the sun. My name will be great amongst the nations. It's all about God and his name being made great amongst the nations. And it's through the gospel that that is happening. He's the one that offers salvation. And so then we get into the New Testament. First book of the New Testament, Matthew, first chapter, first verse says what? Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Traces right back to that promise given to Abraham, which Peter and Paul both refer to as the gospel. And John the Baptist drives this home even more when he sees Jesus. What does he say? He says, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Driving home to the Israelites, hey, that promise that we've heard about for centuries, he is standing right here before us. And so Jesus lives the perfect life, doesn't do anything wrong, and then winds up getting killed, right? But shortly before he's killed, 
He's praying to his father, and he says, Father, if there's any way you can take, if there's any way that we could do this another way, please do that. But it's not about me, it's about you. And he says, Father, it is for this reason that I came. Father, glorify your name. So even Christ dying on this cross is about the Father glorifying his name amongst the nations. The gospel is about the Father glorifying his name amongst the nations. And so Jesus is hung on a cross. Uh, They spill his blood. He dies. He's buried. He rises again three days later. And he spends 40 days with his followers. And right before he goes back to heaven... What does he do? What would you do if you had just a few minutes to be with the people you cared about most and you weren't, you weren't going to see them again on this earth? Would you tell them something brand new? Or would you remind them of things that you have been trying to impart to them? And so what does he give them? What we call the Great Commission. He says, you guys need to take this message to the entire world so that my name will be glorified through the gospel. As I take people who are dead, the Bible says, and I make them alive. And through that... My name will be glorified in Ephesians 10, it says, and the heavenlies will see what is happening, and my name will be great amongst the heavenlies also. And why is God doing all this? It's because of that verse we just read. Because John gets a glimpse in the heaven in Revelations, and he says, before me there was a multitude that no one could number. He said, it's someone from every nation and people and tribe and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they're clothed in white, and they have palm branches in their hands, and what is it they're crying out? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's it. I call it the great party in heaven. And so I like to ask at this point, who wants to go to the party in heaven? And then the next question is, who wants to die? And so the Yeah, so my question is, if you want to go to the party, you don't want to die, what's your plan? One plan is we can start taking the gospel to all the nations because God says once this gospel of the kingdom has been preached to all the nations, then the end will come. The only problem is he also says there's a certain number of people that have to die before he's coming back and this is going to start happening. So some of us, as we go, we will die. And some of our kids will die. But the point is, from Genesis... The Revelation, it's one story, it's about this, the gospel, which is God's name is being made great through this. So that's the first big picture. The second big picture is I want to look at five examples of the sacrifice in the Old Testament and how that leads in and points to Christ. Because how do we know Christ is the way? How can we be confident of that? God has continued to lay building blocks all the way through the Bible to show us that Christ is the way. That is what is required, that sacrifice. So let's go back to Adam and Eve. They sinned, an animal was sacrificed so the skin could be taken to clothe him. What do we learn from that first sacrifice? We learn that because of sin, something has to die. That's the price for sin, something has to die. Either you or something else, but something's going to have to die. The second example of the sacrifice is Cain and Abel. Cain offers a sacrifice that is not acceptable to God. Abel offers a sacrifice that is acceptable to God. What do we learn from Cain and Abel? God determines the acceptable sacrifice, not us. We don't get to choose what we bring to him as the sacrifice. God determines the acceptable sacrifice, not us. Third example, Noah and the flood. Noah, 
his family, all eight of them, are saved from God's wrath with the flood, right? But what's the first thing they do when they finally get on dry land? They offer a sacrifice to God. And what do we learn? You might be saved from God's wrath for a while, but at some point, everybody has to offer the appropriate sacrifice. Noah and the flood, you might be saved from God's wrath for a while, but at some point, everybody has to offer the acceptable sacrifice. Then we get to Abraham and Isaac. You know, Abraham's going to kill Isaac. And what happens right before he kills him? God says, stop. And then they see the animal over in the thicket, who they then use as the sacrifice. What do we learn from that about the sacrifice that God requires? That God's the one that's going to provide the sacrifice, not us. And then you get to the Passover. You know, the ten plagues, the last one, death angel. Israelite houses are protected. Why? Because they offered a lamb that was what? Spotless, didn't have any defects, and they painted the doorpost with the blood. And so what do we learn from that? We learn that the sacrifice has to be perfect, can't have any defects, and that it's the blood that protects. And so then God takes what he has been laying down as, as the building blocks of what the, the sacrifice that is acceptable to him looks like, and he puts it into the law and he gives it to Moses. And so the Israelites are reminded day after day after day after day as they obey the law, this is what is required to be right with God. And think about this. How were the people in the Old Testament made right with God? Now, the Bible does say it's only temporary. Okay? It's only a temporary covering of sins. But how were they made right? Think about it. So when they came and they offered their animal as a sacrifice at the tabernacle or the temple, depending on where we were at the time, did God come down and stamp their paper? You're made right with me for a while? No. Nothing dramatic happened, Right? They were temporarily made right with God. How? Through faith. Because they had faith that if I do what God says, he's going to accept it. Same thing we're asked to do with what we call the gospel, isn't it? You don't, God doesn't come down and write something on you and say, okay, you're good to go now. Even the Old Testament. It says in, in Romans chapter 4, Abraham was made righteous because of his faith. So even in the Old Testament, it was based on faith. And so we have those five sacrifices, Adam and Eve, we have uh, Cain and Abel, we have Noah and the flood, we have uh, Abraham and Isaac, and we have the Passover. And then you get to Jesus. It makes it a lot more clear now why John called him the Lamb of God, doesn't it? Because we have had all throughout the Old Testament showing what the acceptable sacrifice should look like, and then Jesus comes along, the sacrifice provided by God, who doesn't do anything wrong, who has his blood shed. And God says, you trust in this, surrender to this, and you are made right with me. And the best part is, in Hebrews 9 and 10, it says, after Jesus, we don't have to offer any more sacrifices. We don't have to keep going to the temple and offering sacrifices. This is Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. There is no more. But he fulfills all those examples that we saw in the Old Testament. And so that's what I want, I want you to get. From, beginning, from the beginning of this book, the end of this book, 
It's one story about God making his name great and his salvation known all over the world so that he will be great amongst the nations so that there will be a multitude of people around the throne that nobody knows from every group of people in the world worshiping him in heaven forever. That's God's ultimate plan. That's why he's doing this. So what happens to people that don't offer the appropriate sacrifice? You know the story of Lazarus and the rich man, right? Lazarus goes to heaven. The rich man goes to hell. He's in torment. The rich man tells God, can Lazarus just take some water on the tip of his finger and quench my thirst? Nope, sorry, that's not allowed. And then Lazarus says, hey, can you send somebody to tell my brothers? Because they don't need to be going here. And what does he say? They have the prophets. If they won't listen to them, they won't listen to somebody coming back from the dead. So the question I've been asking myself in the last few weeks is, do I really believe that story? Do I really believe that people who have not turned and believed and surrendered to Christ go to a place where they suffer forever and ever, beyond anything we can imagine. You know, I say, people say, well, I don't know if it's really fire or whatever. I'm like, okay, but it's not a day at the beach. I mean, it's not describing a nice day at the beach. It's describing something that is not going to be pleasant. And so if we really believe that about people, are we out telling them this story? Are we out telling them this story? So, what is our role? In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I know this is familiar to you. All this is from God, who through Christ has reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So when we have been turned in, when we have done this, we get turned into a new creation. We have a new identity. And with that comes a message that we have and a ministry that we have. We have the message that God is reconciling the world to himself through Christ. And we have the ministry of taking that and serving other people by sharing it with them. And then the best part is, is that we are then appointed to a position by God as his official ambassadors to have the authority to go out and to share this message and to carry out our ministry. So this is what we are supposed to be carrying out into that broken world. The message of reconciliation, because we have the ministry of sharing this message with others. Why? Because we have the authority, because we've been appointed as ambassadors for Christ. And what did Jesus say? All authority on heaven and on earth, heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. And that authority comes from Jesus... Because he has all authority. So that's what we're supposed to be doing. That's the mission that we're on, is to take this gospel and to share it with others. And so I go back to the question from Branchville.
if you were to die right now and you were to stand before God and he says, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? I'm not asking for an answer. I'm just asking you to think about it. But I think sometimes we get into, and I do too, you get into studying the Bible and you want to figure out all this neat little stuff and you forget. I better have an answer for that. Because not only my life depends on it, my family's life depends on it, my friend's life depends on me having the right answer to that and being able to share it with them. So, what I want us to do now is I want us to think of at least one name that we're going to try to share, share this gospel with this week. Unbeliever. Okay. At least one name. And in a second, we're going to ask God to give us that name. But I'm finding as, as, I, as I share this and I, and I help train believers to share the gospel, a lot of people say, well, I don't know anybody that's not a believer. So I want to go through some stats that will encourage you in this. So if you take Vanderburgh County as the center and then the four counties around it, which are Gibson, Posey, Warwick, and Henderson counties, in a recent survey, about 83% of those people would self-identify as Christians. Okay? But if you look at other numbers, what you find out is only about 20% of those people would actually be what we would call, they've been created, a new creation, surrendered to Christ, accepted Christ as the only payment for their sins. So only 20%. So that means in these five counties, there's 280,000 plus people that are not believers. Okay? It's a large number. Makes it more encouraging. You might find an unbeliever out there. The other thing is, Jesus says in Acts 10 to, or excuse me, Luke 10 to, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Do you know only about 2% of Christians share their faith with other people? So that's discouraging in one respect, but encouraging for you, since you have to find an unbeliever this week, is that there's not a lot of competition out there of other people trying to find unbelievers. Okay? So that's encouraging. Two more stats that I find even more encouraging is, uh, now this was from 2009, so it's been a while, but I would imagine the numbers are, are similar. Um, so they interviewed people who said they would never attend church. 61% of those people who said they would never attend church also said they would be willing to study the Bible with a friend. 89% of those people who said they would never attend church said they would be willing to listen to someone share their faith with them. I found that pretty encouraging. Pretty encouraging. So let's just take a few moments right now, and what I want us to do is I want us to just ask God, God, give us a name, give me a name of at least one person that I'm going to try and share the gospel with this week. Try to share it. You don't have to force them to listen. If they're not interested, you're good, okay? But I'm going to try to share with, and then write that name down. So let's actually just take a couple, a few moments, and we're just going to ask God, God, give me that name of someone that you want me to share this story with this week. It doesn't have to be the three circles, but the gospel with. Okay?